So remembering. Tasha talked about it in the children's message, and this is kind of one of the things that Paul does here at the end of his letter to the Romans. So if you've been around Fruitland for a while, we've been in the book of Romans since back in September. So for a long time. But as Paul comes to the end of the letters, he says, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of something because sometimes we forget. Even though we've been around a long time, even though we've been doing things for a long time. And he talks to the church there and he says, there are still things to see and to learn here about our mission and about our calling. And this is what we're going to be looking at. So even as he gets to the end of the letter here, you might think after this long, is there still something for us to learn? Is there still something? I think there is. And even though at the end of the letter, it feels like he just kind of gets into, well, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I had for lunch yesterday. Here's where I'm going tomorrow. And then next week, I know you all are eager to volunteer because if you jump ahead and read Romans 16, about half of it is people's names. So I'm looking for a volunteer to read scripture next week because at three quarter, you're just, there's lots and lots of names. Volunteers, anyone? All right. We might skip over some of the names, but the names are important because it's a part of the letter, but it feels like, really, this is, why is he doing all this stuff? But at the end here, he's getting to one of his central messages, and he begins by commending the church. He begins by talking to this church in Rome about the things they're doing well. So in 1514, he says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Hear those words. They're full of goodness. They're filled with knowledge. They're competent to instruct one another. I mean, wouldn't you want to hear that as a church? To know here's the Apostle Paul, this one who has planted all these churches, the one who has been commissioned by Jesus to spread his good news. And he looks out at you and says, you're full of goodness. I think that's a good thing. I'd want to know. I'd want to be a part of a church that was full of goodness. Filled with knowledge. They know what they need to know. Competent to instruct. So not only do they know it, but they can teach others about it. Because that's even a whole different level, isn't it? There's one sense where you know something, but how much more do you need to know it in order to teach it to somebody else? And so he's talking to this church. He says, you, you have all these things. But then he says they've forgotten some things. He says, yet I have written you quite boldly. In other words, I've kind of been in your face about this for the last chapters about it on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. He says, although you have all these things going for you, although you're full of goodness, full of knowledge and competent instruct, I need to remind you of some things. And so what has he written boldly about? He's written boldly about how all people have fallen short of God's glory, about how everyone has missed the mark, how everyone has chosen to live their own way instead of God's way, and that God, through sending his son Jesus, has redeemed people, has changed and transformed them, that Jesus now is the risen and resurrected king reigning over, and, and through him and through the power of the Spirit, we can truly live to be the people God has called us to be. And he's made it clear that this is all by grace and that everyone is equal. No one has a standing over one another. That all receive that same grace and that the path to salvation is all through grace. And so he's setting up this sense of equality. And he's also made the point that if this is true, if we're all equally fallen before God and we're all equally saved by grace and 
it's all through the same path, then we need to treat one another as equals. Or as we looked at the last couple of weeks, we need to welcome one another. We need to see each other as members of the same body. We need to love deeply. And so that's what he's getting at is this church that they know it, they're full of goodness, they know all the things, but they also need to live it out. That it's not just enough to be able to quote all the Bible verses. It's not just enough to be able to teach everyone the meaning of particular words and say all these things, but it needs to be lived out. And this is central to what Paul's getting at here, that it can't be one or the other. And it can't just be simply, well, I know all the things, or I'm a good person, and I, I, I do the right things, but it's both of those combined together because part of what he's saying is, as you know who God is, and as you know these stories, you're going to live these things out. What he's saying is the gospel of God invites a way of living. He proclaims this gospel so that they might become an offering acceptable. And listen to the language he uses here in 15, 16. He says, he says to be a minister of Christ Jesus, to the, he gave me the priestly duty. So priestly duty, the priest represents people to God. He says, he gave me this priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. So he proclaims the gospel. Why? So people can go to heaven? No. He says he proclaims it so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. To become an offering, which is language he used earlier in chapter 12, where he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice or as a living offering. Holy and pleasing God, this is your true and abiding act. So what he's saying is that this is what he's preaching, that this gospel he's been proclaiming all through Romans is that it's leading up to something, that it's leading to people giving their lives as an offering to God. Or another way he says it is, the purpose of proclaiming the gospel is to lead people to obedience. And this is where sometimes if we've grown up church for a while, we start to back off a little bit and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Obedience, doing things, that sounds a little like legalism, but it's not. But listen to what Paul says here, Romans 1. This is way back at the beginning of the letter. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Or at the end of the letter, chapter 16, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. So he's saying, this is a way of saying, one of the reasons he's proclaiming the gospel, one of the reasons we preach it is that so people might obey. And that's not often how we think about it, but he's reminding of people that, and the way to think of it is, the obedience, the language is the obedience characterized by faith. So if I were to say, the armor was made of silver or silver armor, it's, it's characterizing it. And so this is faithful obedience or allegiant obedience. Now, clarify a few things. I'm not saying we earn our salvation. That's not what we're getting at. We're not suggesting that we somehow earn our way to God. Jesus' death is completely effective for our salvation. But what Paul make, wants to make the point is our response is faith. Our response to that is faith, and the faith is a believing allegiance that as we 
have faith in Jesus, we're united to him, and that allows us or empowers us to do good works. He says it back in chapter 6. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. So as we give our lives to Jesus, he changes and transforms us. Or in chapter 7. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. That as we're united to Jesus, we do good things. So faith, what Paul has been arguing about the whole letter is, is both inward trust in Jesus' death, but it's also an embodied relationship. It's lived out, it's directed towards Jesus, the crucified, resurrected, and reigning king. And we're called to obedience, which includes repentance and trusting loyalty done through the power of the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit written in our hearts, there's not a list. We, I can't give you the list of like, well, here's the things you need to do to show your allegiance to Jesus. But Paul gives some examples of the way. We're circling here and we're going to be narrowing it down in just a minute though, but he's getting at this central point, what he's getting at here at the end of Romans, he's reminding them that to know everything is not enough, but it needs to be lived out. In other words, they need to be disciples, which goes back to the words of Jesus. Jesus' last words to his followers, he said, this is after Jesus died and resurrected. He came to them, that's to his disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then doing what? And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so Paul isn't making something up here. He's saying that part of following Jesus is living a life of obedience. Now, he's also made it clear we can't do that except through the power of the Spirit working inside of us. That we give our life to Jesus, and as we pledge our allegiance to Him, as we put our trust in Him, God's Spirit works inside us to allow us to obey, but that's a necessary part of it. So he's talking about that this is the Spirit working inside of us. One more passage on that. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He's not suggesting he did it himself, but it's what? Christ working through him and leading the Gentiles to obey God. There's that word again, by what I have said and done. So, I think what he's getting at here part is to think about what is it we think of ourselves doing as a church? And I want to point to one other thing that he talks about and then come back and think about, okay, he's saying all this stuff to the church in Rome, but does that have anything to do with us? Because at the end, he also talks about this mission, and it's kind of funny, because if we think of Paul, if you were to describe Paul, if you've read, if you're familiar with the New Testament, maybe you're kind of new to, would you describe him as kind of a driven person? I mean, he's, I mean, this is a man, he meets Jesus on this road, he's been a persecuting the, the church of Jesus. He meets Jesus, he's changed, he's transformed, and he spends the rest of his life traveling and going from place to place to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus, to start new churches. He gets shipwrecked, he gets beaten, he gets stoned, he gets thrown in jail, and he keeps going and going. And when he wants to say something, he's not afraid to say it. I mean, his letter to the Romans here is kind of tame. 
Some of his other letters, he just kind of gets up in people's faces. He's like, no, you're, look, you're not living the way you're supposed to. He got, Paul is very driven. And so we might think of Paul as he's got this single-minded focus. He's going to go everywhere he can, preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus, start new churches. But at the end of the letter here, he says, well, I want to come visit you, but I got something else I got to do. He says, I want to, my plan is to go to Spain and start some new churches. So if you can picture a map of the Middle East, and here's Jerusalem, and now he's traveled over, and he's in Rome, and then he wants to go farther out to Spain. But he says, well, but right now what I need to do is I need to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because they took up an offering in some of the churches, and the church in Jerusalem is suffering. And so I'm going to take a moment, I'm going to go back there and take care of those people there. He's saying that's part of the gospel too. It's not simply going and preaching, but it's taking care of people. That there's this mutual support and solidarity. And so we see in Paul, he's eager, but he's not rushed. But now I want to come back to us and think about us here at Fruitland Covenant Church. And so thinking about this call when Paul is talking about it and the words of Jesus, when we proclaim the gospel of God, when you think about telling someone about the good news of Jesus, what's your goal? What's our goal as a church? What's our mission? Is it simply to get people to say a prayer, to make a decision, or is it to make disciples? I think what Paul is getting at here is this is our call to make people and disciples, people who know, not only know these things, but to live them out. People who are committed to following Jesus and to living out the good news. It's not enough to just know the verse that says, love your neighbor as yourself, or to be able to tell the story of the good Samaritan. It's to say, how does this, what does this look like in my life? And this is the challenge that churches, and not just our church, but churches around the nation face, churches around the world struggle with, is we've been really good at making converts for a long time, of getting people into the church, but then we haven't been doing so well at teaching them the words of Jesus and helping them live that out. Because it's those two things. When it says, when Jesus says, teaching them to obey... It's one thing for me as a pastor to simply tell you, well, love your neighbor. Now, if someone just tell, gives you some instructions, something simply like, well, I want you to go out and I want you to change the tire on the car. If you've never changed a tire on a car, is the instruction to change the tire helpful to you? Not really, because what we need to do is what we need to teach them how to do it, right? And so I suggest part of what our role as a church is, is not simply to tell people what they need to do, but to teach them how to do it. We can come up with a list of commands, and if we go through the Bible, if we go through the words of Jesus, if we go through the letters that are written in the New Testament, there's lots of commands. There's lots of things that need to be done. Bless those who persecute you. Welcome the stranger. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. We could spend a long time coming up with a list of commands. We could write them up on the wall. We could send them to you in a text message. We could put them on your refrigerator. We could put them in a photo album. But is it enough to simply know them? Is it enough to simply say, here they are? But what Paul is getting at is that what his role was, was to teach and help them live it out. And that's part of our role as a church is to help people know and to live as disciples. To know what it looks like. But it takes patience. It takes work. And as Paul describes himself as a minister, a servant of Jesus, we follow his example. And so we think about how Jesus taught and his patience. And I think about Jesus often in terms of because when Paul talks about it, he says, he says, because of the grace God gave me, this is verse 15 and 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus or to be a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty, so he's serving as a representative. And when you're a representative of someone, what do you need to do? You need to represent that person. You need to be like them. So as we make disciples, whether as individuals or a congregation, we think about how did Jesus make disciples? He spent time with people, right? He spent time around them, and it was a slow process. So if you were to go back and read, there's four stories, four accounts of the life of Jesus, these things we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in those, Jesus, he gathers disciples, and there's different groups. There's big crowds that follow him, and there's a smaller group, and there's this group of these 12 men that are close to him. They're all disciples, but how do they learn? They follow him. They go from place to place with him. And do they spend one day with Jesus and have it all down? They got it all figured out? Oh, we, we, got our, we got our day with Jesus. We went on our weekend retreat. We had a great time. I mean, there was an awesome worship band. And the speaker was awesome. And I mean, he just went on and on. And, and now I know everything I need to do. Did it take a week? A month, maybe. In fact, he spent three years with them. Three years with Jesus, God in the flesh, and at the end, they were still struggling a little bit to figure it out. So the question is, how much patience did Jesus have? So as we seek to teach one another, as we seek to grow, it suggests that we too need the patience and allow God to do the work. And that's what Paul is getting at. He says, when he says it, he says, he talks about how it's God working through him. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles. Doesn't mean that God does it all, but God does it through us. And he's realizing that it takes patience and it takes time. And it takes doing things the way that Jesus did. And again, as we go back to Jesus, the life of Jesus, he was patient with it, but he also did it when it talks about power. And when you think about power, what, how would you, what would you say a demonstration of power looks like? Race cars, it might be, you know, a victory. How did Jesus demonstrate his power? He gave his life on a cross. He served others. Tasha was telling the story of Maundy Thursday, and Jesus 
on that Thursday before his death, that night before his death on a cross, he gave his disciples instructions to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He also gave them another set of instructions. He also did something else that night. You know what he did that night? He took a towel wrapped around his waist and he washed the feet of his disciples and he said, this is what it looks like to be like me, to be a servant. And so I would suggest that as we share the good news, as we disciple people, as we encourage them and teach them about the gospel of God, we need to spread it the same way that Jesus did. Now, the church has not historically done this well. There have been moments in the history of the church where we thought, as the body of Christ, we could impose the faith on other people. The most famous example of that is probably some of the crusades. Not all of the crusades, but some of the crusades that took place were essentially to go and to march the knights of Europe to places, primarily to the Holy Land, and bring the good news of Jesus with a sword. But that's exactly the opposite of Jesus. And Douglas Herring says it this way. He says, spreading the news by any other means is not good news. In other words, spreading the new, good news by, uh, by force, by power. And so we have to think about how do we spread that? Do we try and impose our faith on other people or do we teach like Jesus did? And so he's getting at this sense of this is what it's about. So we make disciples, people who are living out their faith. And it's not an easy task. But I would invite us, Fruitland Covenant, is to look forward to this next year and the years ahead and to say, how are we doing at making disciples? Are we teaching people not only what Jesus said, but how to live out that faith? Are we teaching like Jesus taught? Are we teaching, and are we teaching and recognizing that it all takes place through the power of God and the power of the Spirit at work in us? Because we have a tendency oftentimes to try and do it with all kinds of techniques. I get ads for books all the time. Books, conferences, workshops, all about the ways, here's how to grow your church, here's how to make disciples, here's how to get more volunteers. And there are lots of good ideas, lots of techniques and things that can be used. But I think what Paul is getting at here as he's talking about these things, about the way he served was, and I think Paul knew some of those things. Paul used rhetoric. He used the language and he used techniques when he was arguing with people and explaining things to them. He had studied and he learned and he used all that to help people. But ultimately at the end of it, what was the thing he relied on was the power of God at work. He relied on the Spirit of God at work. And so we as a church, I think, are called to do the same thing. We can read, we can study, we can learn from other churches, and, but sometimes the temptation is to look down the street and see another church and see the things that they're doing. Say, oh, that church, look at the way, look at all the things they're doing, and they've got all these programs, and they've got this many people in the church, and they did 47 baptisms last week, and here's all the things, and we want to maybe look at what they're doing. But what Paul is saying is he's saying, all of those things don't matter unless we're reliant on the power of the Spirit. He's not suggesting, I think, that we ignore all those things, but to say, 
here's what it is that it's doing. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. In other words, it's not something we do, but it's something who? What? That God does through us. And one of the ways ultimately we get to that point is what he hits at the end. When he says in verse 30 and following, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by doing what? By praying. By praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers and the contributions so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. That God of peace be with you all. Ultimately, that's what he calls us to. He calls us to make disciples. He calls us to make disciples like Jesus made them. He calls us to make and teach people to live out and to obey, to make disciples by living through the power of the Spirit. And then at the end of that, he says, the way we're going to make it through that is through prayer, through trusting, by spending time with God, by listening to Him, by hearing Him, by asking God to help us. Because I know, at least for myself, sometimes I get excited about things and I rush out and I want to get them done and maybe I hear about something, I, I hear about a ministry or I have an idea and I'm not sure if it's from God or from me. And oftentimes my first rush is to go out and to try it. And usually, or maybe I, maybe not, I shouldn't say usually, but too often what I do is I wait until I get to the point where things aren't working. And then I start to pray. I get going and I'm, I'm having a conversation or I'm, I'm trying to share with somebody or I'm trying to teach something. I'm trying to explain something. I'm trying to get, help get a ministry going. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, things aren't working. Oh, I should probably pray about that. And what Paul is saying is that's not the fallback solution. Paul's saying that's the starting place. Because he's saying, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ, to join me in my struggle. And so we join and struggle, and sometimes it's not just prayer for ourselves. Here, Paul is inviting them to join in. So we support missionaries. We know people who are involved. And so it's joining you. And so I'm even inviting you, church, to join me in my struggle by praying. My struggle to figure out where are we going as a church. My struggle to help us make disciples. My struggle to help us be the church that God has called us to be. It's not always easy to ask for help. Some of us are better at it than others. And what I look at here is I'm reminded that Paul, Paul who started all these churches, Paul who did all these things, Paul who wrote these letters that ended up in our New Testament. Now, Paul didn't know that. Paul didn't know like, oh, I'm writing this down and it's going to be part of the Bible someday. But he knew that he had these churches. He knew of all the things that he was doing. And it would have been tempting, I think, maybe for Paul to think, I got, look at that, man, look at me. I got this go. I got this down. I mean, I have churches. He says it earlier. He says, he says, by signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel. Half of the Mediterranean, he says, I've preached the gospel all around there. And it might be tempting for Paul at that point to think, I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? 
He'd probably start a podcast, maybe get himself a conference going. And here he is. But no, he doesn't say that. He says, I want you to join me in my struggle. We start, well, how is Paul struggling? I mean, he doesn't seem like he's struggling here, but he's struggling because it is a constant struggle to keep our focus on who God is. It's a constant struggle to make sure we're doing what God wants because there are so many distractions, so many things that pull us aside. So many temptations to turn from the gospel of God, to turn from the power of God, and to turn to rely on ourselves. And what Paul wants to say is here is this is the struggle. It's a struggle for him. It's a struggle for all of us. So I'm inviting you to join me in praying for my struggle, and I'm also praying for yours, and I invite you to pray for one another and your struggles. To think about the people around you and to think that we as a church are called to serve and to love people to proclaim the gospel of God around. And for each of us, it's a struggle. That struggle may look different. The challenges may look different. But we're all in this together. We're not on our own doing this. We've got each other. But most of all, we have God. We have the risen Christ, the power of the Spirit on our side working in through us. So may we trust in Him as we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.